Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Foreman's Dog from the 1998 album End Hits is the host of Creative Control, a long-running, in-depth podcast about musicians and other creators that is simply a goldmine. Usually, in this kind of intro, I would list some of the most prominent guests he's had, but in this case, there have been so many amazing ones that I simply wouldn't know where to start, so I guess for now, I'll just say that he's had every member of Fugazi on at some point, so be sure to check it out. Vish Khanna, welcome to my humble podcast. How are you doing? I'm well, Ian. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here. I reached out to you really early in the process of this podcast, uh, before it launched, in fact. You were like, you know, I'd love to talk about Foreman's Dog, Forensic Scene, or Life and Limb. And I thought, you know, this is how I know Vish will be a great guest. Those three songs are not the ones that anybody (laughs) but a real fan would think of. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's definitely good to have you. And, um, You've said on Creative Control that Fugazi is your favorite band of all time. I reckon a lot of people listening to the show would also say that Fugazi is their favorite band and think of themselves somewhat as music geeks, but your music geek resume is so well-established and indisputable that I think it's worth asking you uh, off the top, in your mind, what sets Fugazi apart and makes them something special, even among all the other quite special music that you love? Well, it's a great question, Ian. I do want to circle back for a moment to say, how are you? I re- I just <laughs> chastised a guest on my show because I noticed a pattern where I'd say, hey, how's it going? And people, uh, particularly Americans, I- I've noticed, would say, I'm fine. And then that was it. And then I just pulled the same stunt on you. So I just want to, before we get going on Fugazi, how are you? You ask me, I'm doing fine. How are you? <laughs> Vish, I'm great. Um, we-, we had, I mean... <laughs> For real, we had talked about, uh, in terms of when we would record this show, we were like, you know, let's wait. We feel like it might be topical, to, and so we will push it until after the election happens. And Mm -hmm. we are speaking a couple days, or or the day after the election was called. Yes. And uh, so I'm doing well. I'm uh, doing well. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing well, too, because of that, frankly. I'm not an American citizen, Mm -hmm. uh, but I am a Canadian citizen, and we are America's hat. So we pay attention to everything going on down below. And so, yeah, just obsessively watching the news, much to the chagrin of some members of my family. I've just had your cable news networks on the TV uh, this whole time. So, yes, I'm doing well, and I appreciate that you're doing well. So in terms of Fugazi, um, you know, these are subjective. It's a subjective thing, but for me, uh, they stick out because I feel like they're just a very powerful musical and cultural force that for me personally I got into them at a point in my life where the things they were singing about the things they were saying in in the press they did uh, the way they conducted themselves uh, eventually their uh, treatment of me um, as a person uh, who you know had access to them on some level or, or they they you know they permitted me to speak with them on the record for interviews and things like that Uh, I saw them a number of times, like all of those things, they're all factors in it. They're just, uh, to me, they're very, very significant. For me, they also dovetail in a way with my love of the Beatles as a child. I love the, my cousin got me into music, my my cousin Anand, uh, he got me into music 
the most consciously. I don't know. Did your parents have record collections, Ian? Because my dad, I don't think of my dad as being a big music fan, but he had like a, a Dean Martin Christmas record I remember playing on purpose. <laughs> and he had these Charlie Pride records that I don't remember anyone playing in the house. But yeah, I was kind of aware of music and then would watch it on TV. Did you? Did your parents like music a lot? Yeah, they didn't have a massive record collection. Although, I mean, speaking of the Beatles, they did... It was one of those situations where they had each bought Beatles albums before they met each other, so their collection included uh, several duplicate Beatles albums, uh, one of which I, you know, stole for myself when my own uh, small record collection started. Um, but yeah, yeah, in my, in my house, it was, um, it was mostly... It, I, I would describe it as pre-Led Zeppelin music. Right. Like that was, yeah, I remember my sure. dad saying at some point that was the last new band that he was like really aware of, and then he's a little bit sort of tuned out. Uh, so yeah, uh, Beatles, oldies, Motown, uh, that's the kind of stuff that my parents would listen to. And my mom was a huge Barbara Streisand fan, but I don't think we like let her play that around the house too much, so <laughs> that wasn't really a big factor for me. Well, my cousin Anand uh, introduced me to the Beatles, and then also things like The Police and and U2 in the 80s. So I, I became very, I liked the music, but I got very obsessed with knowing more about the music. So I listened to like pop radio obsessively and I watched lots of music on TV. There was lots of, in Canada, we had much music. You guys had MTV. We had uh, much music here, which was sort of the equivalent. Yeah, we got we got much music. We really, I, I think at some point MTV had started to decline and much music was a little bit better. So that that formed a segment of my uh, TV viewing for sure. So it was quite remarkable and 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 really in depth and and free form and it felt very verite and I appreciate it more as I uh, get older. And we all make these podcasts that are both you know uh, formal and and yet raw. There's a rawness to this, like it's a freeform thing. And I think a lot of that I attribute, my interest in that stuff, I attribute a little bit to much music. But anyway, yeah, so I just became an obsessive music fan and I read lots of mainstream music magazines. And then I started listening to underground radio shows and college radio. And then I just started to discover, you know, fanzines. And I got to an age where we could drive to all the good record stores. And so I was just frequently exposed. I'm sure uh, other people have said this. You just would, did you, did you have the experience of just hearing the word Fugazi, like just hearing it around, because I, I, it always felt like I, I just came upon it so often that it felt like a secret password or something. <laughs> like I didn't know what it was until I finally heard the music. Is that how you did you do? You, do you know where I'm coming from with that? Uh, the answer for me is no. My as far as my memory goes, there's a particular person in high school who just introduced me to. Like, I think it was a recommendation, specific recommendation. Fugazi, Red Medicine is an awesome album. Uh, you should check it out. So I went out and, and simply bought it based on that. Um, so that was it for me. I, I wasn't one of these people who came in via Minor Thread or Rites of Spring right. or anything. Right. It was simply a guy who gave me a recommendation. And I thought, uh, sure, I'll take a recommendation. And I took a flyer on it. Well, Red Medicine is is an entry point record for me too. I picked up I do I remember picking up a used copy of the 13 songs uh compact disc <laughs> and and got into the band because I just kept hearing about them. And then I personally saw them for the first time after Red Medicine came out. They played the Warehouse in Toronto on September 27th, 1995, my notes tell me, uh with uh two Guelph bands opening up, which we thought was pretty interesting. The Guelph bands were Super X and a band called Minnow. Um, and I knew about them 
because they would play shows around where I lived in, in the K- Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo, Guelph area of Ontario and Canada. And, and so I hadn't yet moved to, I think some people know me as being from Guelph, but I, I actually lived in a city just outside of Guelph. I moved to Guelph in 1996 to do school. And so, yeah, I'd seen Fugazi when I was still in high school. And then I saw them again in 1998 uh, in Chicago, Detroit, Rochester, Syracuse, and Toronto. And then again in 2001 in Chicago. So, yeah, I just, huge fan. Just huge Fugazi fan. Anytime I pick up a guitar or play the drums, I, I, I tend to revert to some semblance of emulating Fugazi or shellac or whatever. Like, there's just certain era that I always, like, when I pick up an instrument, the go-to is to play, like, a riff or a beat that's sort of from that zone. And I don't know what that means about me, but it means something. And uh, so, yeah, I love the band, love the lyrics they came up with. And, uh, yeah, just all in. And to me, like, to really answer your question, and I know some people would think this is hyperbole, but I believe it's come up on your show before, I feel like they've got the the same, on a smaller level, of course, globally, but I do think they have the same cultural impact as the Beatles. I really think they impacted underground culture, and they they put a lot of work into what they did and were very innovative with their instruments in a way that I think rivals only the Beatles. So I don't think they sound like the Beatles, although ironically enough, today I might make that argument based on the song we're discussing. <laughs> but yeah, I think they're uh, I think they're right up there. I, the Beatles, I, like I, I said that as far back as the intro to this podcast. Uh, I thought maybe nobody will agree with me on this comparison, but I, I've always felt kind of the same way. And it's on, on some level, it's an odd comparison to make because I'd say for the vast majority of people, they, they've never heard of Fugazi right so it's it's a strange comparison to make but yeah you're right that for a segment of the population for a certain world they are uh, a name that is spoken with reverence and awe and um uh, yeah uh, they're they're a band apart well i will say to speak to your point just now i think much like the beatles like just so people are clear the beatles broke up in 1970 and we are still talking about them and there are bands and artists who get compared to them and they're they're so young and into whatever they're into that they're like I don't know this these people keep saying we sound like the Beatles I don't get it and I imagine it's because the music of the Beatles has pervaded the culture so much that at some point you could start to play something and not even realize you're vaguely aping the Beatles I think Fugazi in terms of underground music is kind of similar. I, I really do. Like, I don't think there's too many artists that overtly sound like them, but I think the ripple effect, the waves <laughs> of their cre- creative period are kind of still felt among underground musicians. And so, yeah, it's not a mainstream thing, although it, as the underground stuff, uh, you know, kind of rose up, I think, yeah, there's sort of elements of Fugazi and and all sorts of things. I remember when, like, at the drive-in got popular. Uh, I was like, oh, hmm. I saw them. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that band in 1999 in Vancouver. And uh, I thought, oh, this is clearly a band that probably at some point really dug Fugazi. And then they got big, and then other bands started to sound like that band. And so you know what I mean? Like, I think it's just a cycle. Cycles of stuff. There's going to be some young punk band that's doing something, and we old people will say, hey, you must like Fugazi. And they're like, for what? I don't know what you're talking about. No, I don't know. I 
I'm just playing music that sounds like the music I heard I heard on some video game, Mister. Get out of here. That's what they. <laughs> I assume that's what the kid would say. So yeah, I think they're I think they're impactful and certainly for me. And that I'll leave it at that for now. Certainly. Well, uh, I mean, before we start talking about the song uh, today's song proper, uh, is there anything you want to say about? Any personal interactions? Um, as I've said, you have talked to all of the members of Fugazi on your podcast, Creative Control. How did, how did you first get to know them or uh, come into contact with them as more than simply a, a fan of the band? I started, ex- well, okay, so on that uh, tour, or rather of those 1999, 1998 tour dates, what happened was uh, Fugazi and Shellac, and, and, it, and it turned out it ended up being Blonde Redhead, uh, played a festival in Chicago. Hang on, I'm just going to turn around and look at the date. Oh, wait, wrong side. The poster. I have two of these posters that Jay Ryan created for these two uh, Chicago independent music festival shows. One took place in 98. One took place in 2001, uh, both in Chicago at the Congress Theater. Just a moment. Oh, Friday. Okay. Friday, May 8th, 1998, I went to go, I, I arranged a caravan of people <laughs> from Guelph to go to the Chicago show on Friday, May 8th, 1998. And uh, among the, the, the people in the caravan uh, were Aaron Riches and uh, Phil Hunter. And as a matter of fact, Steve Clarkson. Now, Aaron and Phil played in the aforementioned band Minnow, who opened for Fugazi in 1995. I didn't know them then. But they actually, they opened that show. And Steve Clarkson was in the band Super X. So Super X and Minnow, as I mentioned earlier, opened for Fugazi at the warehouse in Toronto. So weird Guelph connection. So I randomly said, Aaron, who I was friends with, and Phil, do you guys want to come with some of my friends? We'll go to Chicago. So we did. We went to the show. And, you know, Aaron, Riches, and Phil were involved in bringing Fugazi to Guelph uh, for like their second or third ever Canadian show. And I've t- uh, Aaron was Aaron Riches was just on my Creative Control podcast telling this story. But basically, he was really into Minor Threat and had heard that Fugazi had this, or rather that Ian had this new band called Fugazi. And so through a mutual friend, he got Ian's phone number, called Ian and said, hey, I'm a big fan. If you ever want to bring Fugazi to Guelph, let me know. And, and Ian at the time said, well, we're not touring right now, but if we do, I'll definitely call you. And he did. Six months later, he called Aaron, and Fugazi played a show, I want to say, off the top of my head, it was in 1989. And so they became very, they became friends. And so once we went to the Chicago show, uh, Aaron had sort of gotten in touch with Ian to let him know that we were around. And so Ian invited us to attend the Detroit show. So I went to the Detroit show, and we got there early because Ian and, and Aaron are friendly. We walk into the State Theater in Detroit, and Ian says, Ian sees us walk in, and he says, you guys the Canadians? <laughs> and I sa- we said, yeah. And he said, oh, cool. You should, you should check out the State Theater. It's great. There's a, there's a thing at the, on the roof. You know, you should go look at it. It's really, like, fancy, and it's ornate. So we, that was, like, my first ever interaction with Ian. And then after the show, I was on stage during the show, just taking, like, I mean, side stage taking photos and... It was a real big thrill and an experience. And, you know, band was at peak power. It was really fun. And so that's like the first time I vaguely said hello to Guy, but nothing really. I just sort of said hello. And then, you know, years later, somewhere around 2002, 
I started exploring uh, print journalism and eventually broadcast journalism. And so then I began to interview them. I interviewed Ian in, I think, 2002 for uh, what was meant to be a uh, school newspaper piece. Uh, I, for some reason, it didn't happen, as I recall, but I probably have the tape of that interview somewhere. And then over the years, yeah, we just uh, we just kept talking. I kept reaching out to them, and uh, you know, uh, I had a college radio show with my wife called the Mishvish Interracial Morning Show, uh, and uh, we uh, featured all the members of Fugazi. Celebrated, you know, various Fugazi inter- uh, anniversaries. Glennie Friedman was on the show. Jem Cohen was on the show. People related to the band, like Ian, really. We connected. I mean, we had a mutual connections, and then we talked so many times that uh, Ian trusted me and shared, you know, contact info with me and other people. You know, they they vouched for me. And I, I do remember, like, I had Guy on that show to talk about. I think it was the. It must have been the 20th anniversary of a show they played at the, of their first show. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that's what it must have been. Uh, or would it have been? Yeah, that's probably. Oh, no, 10th. Must have been the 10th anniversary. Sorry. Pardon me. And he, you know, we did the segment and he threw to a song. I asked him to pick a song to play between our interview uh, breaks. Like we kind of, it was a pre recorded, but I was pretending it was live. And I said, can we go to a song? He chose the song. And then in the outro, I said, okay, that's this is blah, blah, blah from In on the Kill Taker. And then I said, okay, we're just going to take a pretend fake break here, Guy. And he's like, wow, you knew the name of the album. <laughs> and I thought, oh, so he must, they must deal with people who, you know, say they are fans or, or maybe aren't as knowledgeable about the band. And, and so they don't know. They don't know. You know, you say yes yeah. to do an interview. You don't know what the people are like. But he, he was like, oh, you knew the name of the album. And I was like, yeah. Today yep. we have Guy Picciato on the show, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so i think i think there's little icebreaker moments and then over the years yeah just constant interaction running into each other at shows uh me going to see them solo uh or do other projects uh and just constant interaction covering you know writing a lot about them for exclaim magazine and for my work at cbc so yeah just constant support interest uh they appreciate it i think um and at this point yeah become kind of friendly, I would say. You know, Brendan and Guy and I uh, often will text each other random things about basketball or comedy. And so, yeah, it's just become the... And, you know, and Ian and I exchange emails and Joe and I, when we can, we exchange messages. So, yeah, it's just become a... I mean, how interesting is that? Yeah, it's you, beautiful. Uh, fall in love with a band, you fall in love with a band and you think they're the Beatles and then they turn out to be super sweet loving people and and you realize too that um you know sometimes you you encounter people who like your stuff and you have nothing else in common and and you maybe think uh uh, what how how is this even feasible that this person and i are in the same milieu maybe or how like they seem to be we seem like radically different people but then every once in a while and i think that's my experience with um the fugazi people is that we're we're kind of similar, I think. I'm not trying to say I'm as uh, talented or as great as a as a creative person as they are, but we have similar interests and maybe similar outlooks on life, and it just strengthens our my bond with their music to know that as people, you know, we get along. We have similar interests. I think I think I think also I was not afraid even then. I was never really. I made jokes with them. 
And I think they, you know, I don't think people take that band very seriously. They're very serious people. You know, they talk about this in the instrument movie. You know, people think we're monks. Yep. You know, <laughs> and I think if you demonstrate a humanity and an interest in, and you know, and they would laugh at my jokes and I would laugh at their jokes and we would jokes, you know, fun. It's not, it was fun. We've had a fun series of interactions. So that's how I, I, I that's what I think. We have, we are, we have an affinity for the same things and thus now an affinity for one another. Yeah, that's lovely. And it's, I think it's something that comes across in your conversations with them on your show. And, and not only them, I mean, as you mentioned before, there are probably a lot of musicians who end up doing interviews or appearances with somebody who doesn't really know their shit. And you, you, you are the kind of uh, music interviewer who has people that he's interested in on his show. And that just, that's one of the things that makes your interviews uh, really great. So I'd again, no. uh, yeah, I'll, I'll encourage my listeners to check it out. And I'll, I'll of course put links in the show notes to some relevant episodes they could check out if they haven't already. Um, you, you're on, Thanks. Th- thank you, Ian. I appreciate that. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. You're on episode 570 something of your show at this point. <laughs> like, uh, he, I don't. Yeah. Uh, as we're speaking, hang on. I don't remember. I, yes, let's say, oh wait, I have a link here that tells me that stuff. 578. I had, uh, as we're speaking, yes, Chris Rowley of, uh, the band Adult Life was just on. Uh, after Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth was on, and there Chris, I don't know if I don't know if you remember the band Huggy Bear from the '90s, but Chris was in that band. They were kind of known as uh, uh, they're a British band, but kind of aligned with the Riot Girl movement, and they were really uh, they came to being because they saw a, a show by the Nation of Ulysses in England and lost their minds, and so <laughs> and so very connected to sort of Discord universe in a in a in a loose way, I suppose. Um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, that's right. Episode 578, as we're speaking. Whew. That makes you a, a veteran in this uh, quote-unquote industry. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Well, today we're talking about Foreman's Dog from End Hits. I do have some remarks by way of just an intro to this song before we start kicking it around between the two of us. It's one of those rare uh, gee lyric songs that he has actually spoken about uh, in in some depth and gives a little bit of an insight into what the deal is, what it's about, what he's what his thinking process was behind writing it. So yeah. I'm going to quote uh, from an interview. Looks like this is from Addicted to Noise, April 1998, which I guess would have made this you know right when End Hits was coming out because that's that's the month it was released. So um, Gee says. That phrase, Foreman's dog, was inspired by the Muhammad Ali documentary, When We Were Kings. You know that scene where George Foreman comes off the plane and he's got his dog there? He was just bringing his German shepherds over because they were his dogs and it was a little bit of machismo. But to the people in Zaire, when he showed up with these dogs, they were a symbol of the Belgian colonialists who had been there earlier, so they were a symbol of imperial power. So George Foreman's public relations move was a complete bust because he showed up without having any concept of what he was doing. It was really inadvertent, but it was read by the people that way. When I was thinking about the song, I was thinking about the way different things function as symbols of power. 
When you're watching a show like Cops, it's just an advertisement for state power. It's saying this is what happens to you if you're poor and you don't have your shit together. The cops will kick in your door and kick the shit out of you. The thing about cops that's so insane is that you'll have a guy hiding under the refrigerator box being torn up by the police dogs, and then at the bottom of the screen at the end of the show, they'll they'll be like, conviction overturned. It always turns out that the guy was innocent or the guy was caught with like a joint is completely insane. The point of the show is not that a misdeed is being punished. The point of the show is just to show state power. I started thinking about these things and how they operate on people's consciousness almost subconsciously. End quote. So, yes. um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. about, that's about my reading of it too. And I hadn't read that, uh, I don't believe I'd read that, that, that article, but yeah, that makes sense to me. That's what I pick up on as well. What do you make of that? So it's one of these songs that like each verse explores a similar idea through a different kind of person, I, I guess is what I would say. Hmm. Um, and there's a, so maybe the, the cop verse that comes in sort of toward the, uh, I guess right at the end of the song is one of those. Um, there's sort of a verse about what I would say is a uh, an exploitative news broadcaster who takes glee in tragedy because of what it will do for his ratings. Yep. There's a verse about tough guys, bodybuilders, um, that mu- muscle heads, cops, and- cops. I think is what they are. Uh, yeah, I. I- yeah, there's a lot of that going on. You said earlier, you know, I, I suggested, I feel like we started talking about me being on the show in like May or June or something. And I, and I, as you mentioned earlier, I was like, you know what? With Trump in power, as we're speaking, I kind of, and, and, and just the, the level of spectacle and media manipulation we're going to experience all together in the next few months, why don't we wait this out? Why don't we actually talk about this song uh, closer to uh, well, first of all, it's hard for me to make any demands of you because you're admirably doing this show in alphabetical order. Uh, <laughs> but I think you revealed to me that by your schedule, this wouldn't be out uh, until I still actually don't know when it's going to be out after the election is what we de- decided, right? Or what we determined. Um, I believe the release date will be December fifth. Right. Okay. So we have some. Yeah. Exactly. So I was like, okay, great. So let's wait, and that's why we've we've put this off. I think uh, the one of the things that strikes me about this song, written in and around or released anyway in 1998, is that it still resonates. Like these ideas that we're living through with both. Um, you know, the obvious racism and classism that exists in our, you know, cultural, sociocultural lives uh, and how that is sort of both exploited and mediated by platforms and, and, and by politicians, you know. I think it's really fascinating how much this song holds up and, and sadly how much of it is still relevant to the way we both are, uh, you know, the way we consume media and culture and the way it, obviously it's a, it's a give and take relationship. Like we are given this stuff because we will take it. And so I, that's part of it. Like, you know, I, I do think Fugazi to me is very timeless, uh, in, in particularly, you know, end hits the argument uh, actually, yeah, I don't even, all of it. I, I really think we lucked out. The, it's nice to fall in love with a band that feels timeless. And uh, 
And I feel like this song is sadly timeless. Like I feel like a lot of the themes within it that you described, that Guy described in that interview, doesn't it feel like they still we're still kind of dealing with that stuff now? I would say yes, but like with a little caveat, which I mean, if we're talking about the cop verse in particular, so a well-worn cop shoes kicking out a door frame, class war extra, which I love, by the way, like calling a cop a class war extra. That's brilliant. PRing like foreman's dog. So basically, uh, in in Guy's words, comparing this to George Foreman's dog as a PR move, like the cop wants to be seen as a tough guy. And I guess in the telling of this song that Guy is trying to get across, uh, that backfires, right? It's like people see that and they're like, no, this is this is completely uh, backwards as a as an image that you want to be putting out. We don't agree with that. So um, I think that still holds up partly. But my caveat is that I think we have seen in response to the I mean, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the fraught uh, racial incidents concerning the police in the United States that a huge segment of the population uh, is uh, goes in for that shit. They they seem to approve. Uh, and I think um, the way that those incidents have, have been focused on by each side of the political spectrum and the results of that, which, which we've seen a hugely... Um, a massive voter turnout for once in this country, but almost evenly divided, in, at least in terms of, uh, you know, coming down to sort of to the wire and not being what you would call a landslide. I think it shows that, it, yeah, it turns out that people are uh, on the cop's side in a lot of these cases and their PR, as it were, is in fact working on these people. Well, okay, so the flip side of, of I, I mentioned that this resonates now, but let's let's home in on that show Cops. And, and how it's being sort of described in these really beautiful turns of phrase by, by Guy. Like, a, a man, check it out, a well-worn cop sho- cop's shoes kicking out a doorframe. A well-worn, that's like just little details like that I think are really beautiful. A well-worn cop's shoe kicking out a doorframe. So like a vet, some sort of cop who's seen it all, supposedly, and is maybe just tired and sick of it. Kicking out a doorframe, class war extra, PRing like a foreman's dog. What a slob. But I guess, you know, he's got to make a living somehow. Tossing a wild-eyed greaser right onto the pavement, scanned into the bright light, maxing the pixels to glow. This is all about spectacle and perception, I think. And I do think that within this song, I think you alluded to Guy saying like he was really uh, concerned about and maybe intrigued by the machinations of state power as they exist in this song. And I do think, like, as a person living in the world, particularly these days, we are really mired in what power means, and also within what power means, what control means. And so we are, there's a lot of anxiety, and and the media and police, I think, really try to make sure we're anxious <laughs> and we're anxious about our communities. Like we, we're, we're anxious about the people around us. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't trust anyone. We feel unsteady. It, it all feeds into some manner of maintaining a status quo where we are, our mental health is damaged. 
Uh, our ability to trust our neighbors is damaged. Our fear of police and and not being, you know, like living in fear, like that, to heighten that is maybe to the advantage of law enforcement, I think. So there's a lot of that swimming in this song where you talk about the power dynamic between a, a, a cop and, you know, a citizen uh, who is you know, dealing with this situation, there's this line about now parade the muscles trying to make their dicks grow, warring with their bodies, dimensions oversold. And I wonder, I wonder if I pierce it, will my body stop lying to me? That's also like trying to live up to how the media is controlling our, the way we exist, you know, like suggesting that one body type is the body type everyone should aspire to, you know, or, and, yeah. and, and so controlling us that way, making us anxious about our physical states, just our very beings. Like, am I good enough? You know, like it, it's all about stuff we see that, you know, it's being mediated to us via television, but why, via commercials, uh, via the news, you know, like everything that we're presented with is implicitly meant to make us feel like we need to consume things to be better, uh, whatever that means to you. We have to act a certain way to fit in. And I feel like there's a lot of that control stuff happening in this song that to me is really about PR, media manipulation, media distortion, and and how it relates to power and control and how we function as just sane people in that muck, if that makes any sense. That's a great point. And something that I would add to that is that... Um I mean, you could you could say everything that you said and make it sound like sort of uh, make it sound like a vast conspiracy. But I think something that's happening in the background of this song is something similar to what I said about Cash Out among maybe among a couple of other songs, which is that it describes a scenario that I think arises organically. It wasn't planned out to be this fucked up, but by the nature of the endeavor, it becomes that way. I mean, like if you think about twenty four a twenty four hour news cycle, I don't think anybody set out to say, okay, let's let's get people uneasy, let's get people anxious. But it's it's the kind of thing that sells. It's the kind of thing that people tune into the news for. It's the kind of thing that makes them their livelihood. So it's going to lead to a situation where it's like, yes, there a, an earthquake. Let's get cameras on the ground. This is great for us. Same with, you know, media trying to sell a certain body image. It's not that it's not so much that they're trying to sell it as it is like that's what sells. So that's what they traffic most in. And it compounds a problem um, even down to cops. Um, I like I want to be as cynical about cops as much as anybody. But I think same thing. It just turns out that, you know, w- the way they set up police unions and people wanting to simply keep their jobs results in this situation where they have more leeway and power than is really good for anybody. Um, but that that is sort of the situation that arises. So I think in all of these situations outlined in this song, th- they're less planned and more the results of unfortunate... What's what's the word? What's the word that I'm looking for here? The, like things things that had to happen just based on the way they were set up. I don't know. Does that make sense? Uh I don't think this was fate for us to behave this way and consume this way. I mean, when you're talking about... So we didn't really even... I think you maybe alluded to the the first part of the song. Here's an all-new version teeming with distractions. 
Trojan horse roll backwards, mastered by your own device. Device these days has a really loaded uh, sort of feeling to me, since we all use devices for everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. This this song was written well before the smartphone era, but that first little stanza, but, say, like you could to- definitely read that as an anti-smartphone kind of a thing. Well, I think within, so the next verse is, then splice, then cut in the sad and sorry image of some grinning caster, broadcaster, staring at a sinkhole, piling up disasters, marking the footage raw. And then as we mentioned... Uh, there's uh, definitely the the song is itself an allusion to the documentary When We Were Kings, uh, Foreman's Dog. It's about George Foreman's dog. There's a lot of stuff about how there's a lot of media stuff in here, and I feel like if mm-hmm. you really take a, 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 a maybe a, a big picture view, like I mentioned the broadcaster, and, and you kind of I think if you're listening closely or reading these lyrics you pick up on the idea that this is a a TV newscast that's gone awry. And as I'm going through the lyrics here, I feel like we are watching a news broadcast that has been mediated to tell a particular story a particular way. Then we cut to commercial. Now parade the muscles, (laughs) trying to make their dicks grow, warring with their bodies, dimension oversold. That's a commercial. Like, that's a commercial in the midst of this broadcast. I wonder if I pierce it, will my body stop lying to me? So if you trace, I'm not a media studies expert, but if you think about how commer- how the reason we're watching the news is because uh, these networks and their ad, dis- ad division uh, secured a bunch of advertising money. And so when you say it's maybe just fate that we consume this way, I think what this song is really getting at the heart of it is the nefarious relationship between advertising, between how how advertising and consumption makes us, it's meant to make us feel better to buy the right oatmeal. And if you don't buy the right oatmeal, you're, you're missing out. And maybe your friends down the street, they're eating the right oatmeal. So what's wrong with you? Why are you getting that other oatmeal? It seems very benign, doesn't it? But it does create a need, this product placement constantly. And I would argue uh, that Guy was kind of onto something. This this notion that George Foreman brought his dog to Zaire to show it off and to say something about himself, it is weirdly product placement. I'm not saying he was like, everyone should get a dog, but he was trying to say something about his own being by showing off this dog and I would argue that within what Guy's talking about here, like, what does it mean that the news is racist and classist and potentially, what does it mean that a show like Cops exists? What is that saying about the advertisers who have signed on to be a part of this show, you know, to have their products show up in between us watching cops prey on people of color primarily? Because that show... What I was going to say earlier is, interestingly, like I made a point of saying how this song seems so relevant now. What's hilarious, sadly, is the the show Cops has reversed. It used to be the camera crews would follow the cops around and show everyone across the world how fucking shitty people of color are. And look what they can and can't do. We've flipped the cameras on the cops now. People are filming cops doing horribly shitty things and it's tragic and crappy but that is a weird knot in this song's existence is that 
it's 180'd. And I'm not saying in a negative way. It's just that surveillance state that we were so happy to eat popcorn and watch cops or oh, these other shows and the news, it's flipped. And that's why everyone's freaking out. The powers that be are like, wait a second, we created an ecosystem where people have the technology to capture us doing shitty things? That's not how this was supposed to work. What is going on here? We set up a system where we had TV networks and the police and the law enforcement. Everyone was in the bag. Now the regular, any old citizen can take a photo or take a video of us doing shitty, horrible stuff. That's not right. We're supposed to be in charge of the messaging. So sorry, I'm going on a bit of a rant and a tangent here, but I do think this song has a lot of, it it had when it came out themes that seemed prescient. And now as I, I'm just spitballing here, by the way, I have nothing. (laughs) I'm just going through it with you. Now that I think about it, it's a really oddly relevant song for now in terms of what it foretold and what the obvious end game was uh, based on the scenarios outlined in the song, what is going to be the logical result? Well, people are going to revolt and they're going to aim their cameras back at you and tell your story in a way that you're not maybe happy with. Does that make sense? That's, that's fascinating. So much of that makes sense. I want to say in particular, I was like, God damn it, Vish, that's, brilliant i think you're i think you're absolutely right like you look at this from a perspective of yeah it's almost like stage directions right like something you would read in a script then splice then cut in this and then cut to commercial i think that's brilliant i think you're absolutely right that's uh you can i I hadn't i hadn't been i've been living with this song for i guess 22 years and i hadn't thought of it this way but as this is good i like podcasts i like you (laughs) I like you. I like having conversations about songs because it just makes you think about them in a way. I mean, we're getting into English essay (laughs) (laughs) territory here. But no, that is maybe what you're about on some level with this show. But I do think lyrically, there's a lot of stuff swimming around in here that it stuck out for me at the time as someone who totally is a media person. Like, obviously, I (laughs) didn't, I didn't, you know, knee-jerk away from this song, I entered the realm of being a media person. You are too, you know? Like, we we are in the media. And so I view it as instructive in that way. Like, what is, what is my peer group and what are my colleagues complicit in by just doing their thing? So it's, it's a lot to think about. And it's also, as I said earlier, it's just a super artfully written song. Lots of interesting details. I'm a huge fan of, I think, Guy... Someone, I think it was uh, Carl Newman of the New Pornographers had a tweet like, who are the best songwriters in America? Uh, Like a couple of months ago. And I just instantly was like, Guy Picciotto. (laughs) There's no no one. I know they write collectively, but when I think of, I know for a fact that Guy wrote the words that he sings in this song and Ian uh, Mackay uh, sings the songs he wrote in this song. So that all that to say, like, I can say with some authority that Guy's lyrics here really seem magical to me. Yeah, and yeah. By the way, and any conversation about great songwriters has to include AC Newman himself. I, he's like the god of power pop, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, Carl's a good. He's a good dude. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the idea of what do the advertisers during your the breaks in your show say about your show? Um, it's very interesting, I guess, to push back against that a little. 
I I almost think people are numb to any incongruity there. Like, do you think like do you think if <laughs> seeing an ad for oatmeal in the middle of a showing of cops, like I don't even think people would notice. Like we're at the point where there's no irony there. It's it's so par for the course that we. I would uh, I would I would counter that by asking you to think about our media landscape now in that and how advertising fits in. Most of us don't even encounter advertising if we're lucky. We're watching Netflix. We're watching whatever streaming service we have, YouTube or whatever. They'll they'll be the odd short ad. Um, and if you have regular cable, which I do at the moment. Uh, you see ads, but think of it that way. Like, think about why advertisers... I sort of suggested to you that, like, the powers that be, I don't mean to use a cliche, might be freaking out uh, if you follow the trajectory of this song and what it was saying at the time and where we're at now. Powers that be might be freaking out because they're bleeding money. They're not making the same money they used to make. Right. And we're all talking about self-care so much that and and the importance of checking in and and being true to yourself and taking care of your mental health the powers that be if you will freaking out we're on to them we're on to what's going on we're on to like why do i feel bad well i watched the news or oh i i i went to the store to get that thing that they told me to get to make myself feel better and it didn't work we're kind of more on to them now so to your point yes I think we our bullshit detectors are up uh, regarding advertising, but I also think if you're lucky, particularly now when most of us are living these sort of sheltered pandemic lives, you're not exposed to as much advertising in a weird way uh, because you can skip it. I never see an ad on Netflix ever. Uh, I never see an ad on most of the streaming services. I'm watching. I'm watching shows that normally have ads. No ads. No ads at all. It just you know you, you yeah. take a little, little. And so I think advertising's in a hard place. And so, uh, and I, but I have no sympathy for it because I have also, as a lifelong TV consumer, my friends would marvel at how my ability to skip ads. Uh, <laughs> I would flip to the other channel and when they had ads, I'd flip to a different channel. They're like, this is like watching Mozart watch TV. How do you do this? How do you know there's an ad? And they would always like, how did you know that the show was back? Like I'd get back to the show we were watching and the ad, the last ad had just faded out. They're like, how do you do that? I'm like, I don't know. I am wired into my remote and this TV. I just do it. It's like experience. I just know how to do it. And all I'm saying to you, I'm not bragging here. I just figured out how to avoid ads. So this is all I do is avoid ads. No, no. I think uh, I think Vishkana colon the Mozart of media consumption is <laughs> great potential title for a memoir or to go on your tombstone. I'm not trying to be braggadocious yeah. here. I'm just saying uh, those of us who are I, everyone does it now. Uh, I mean, we all avoid ads. I think that's a key part of our lives is figuring out how to skip an ad, avoid watching an ad, avoid seeing an ad, and and then you have a song like this one that, again, I'm I'm I, I don't know if my reading is correct, but it feels that way to me. It feels that way to me, like the interconnected nature of promotion, advertising, messaging, how we consume it, what it does to us, how it affects our day, uh, you know, how it affects the way we live in our communities. It's all within that song. And yeah, I think you're right, and. Uh, but um, I, to further talk about the ways that that has changed and into the landscape we're living in now, it's like not only the powers that be that are freaking out and have have had their uh, profit um, methods challenged a little bit. I mean, it's happened to independent musicians, as as we're all aware, yeah. too. Yeah. Like they can't make money in the same way. But it's it's kind of you know in a strange way. I mean, I see more music videos 
nowadays that have product placement in them. And um, I, I, and I mean, if you're talking about the way the other ways that advertising has changed, that's like a cottage industry too with today's social media influencers who are posing on Instagram and and now they are the ones instead of the ads that we used to see on TV that are you know parading the muscles or the the asses or or whatever that uh, are telling us that our bodies aren't good enough. Um, so it's like the kind of the good guys and the bad guys have have adapted and they've had their own challenges in strange ways. It's hard to say now, like, <laughs> like who has the upper hand at this point? I may be a pessimist, but I would still venture to say the powers that be. Um, I mean, but... I, I have uh, the occasional ad on my podcast, uh, and I have pay- I have bills to pay too. Musicians all have bills to pay, and it's they're hard decisions to make for sure. Um, yeah. and you do the best you can to live as ethically as as you possibly can, and and live outside of of that infrastructure but yes it's harder to be a it is maddening don't you sometimes think in like we we put so much work into these podcasts and we just give them away for free like i'm not saying to the people who listen to them but like think of all the places your podcast lives mm-hmm. all the companies that are exploiting our labor like we i don't get any money from apple or google or spotify or right they're not my networks i just put out a thing and then when depending on your distribution setup it sends it to all of these companies and it's strange it's a sort of a weird thing we've quietly agreed to do like to not be compensated for all of this work by the companies that are profiting from them so this is a whole other conversation uh but and i'm, I'm <laughs> no i think it's it's very relevant though because i mean to speak about this podcast I mean, I would say, like, you know, cards on the table, I'd say I only have a few hundred subscribers at this point. Um, it's it's a small podcast, and um, so this may not even be relevant. I don't think I would have the opportunity to make a lot of money off of ads, but uh, kind of something I decided at the outset was that, look, this is a podcast about Fugazi. I can't make money on this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's ridiculous. I, I can never have ads on this show. It would just be too ironic to the point of absurdity. That, so I, I put that out of my mind. I said, this is not going to be a possibility. And I mean, it's kind of interesting. I think in a very small way, the experience of doing the podcast that way without any kind of pressure to try to make money on it is um, giving me in a small way insight into the um, the freedoms which Fugazi had to operate. You know, like I, I don't have to care about maximizing my audience. I don't honestly care about how many subscribers I get. I put out the show on Saturday mornings, which I don't I think is goes against orthodoxy of when you should release podcasts to get the most listeners mm-hmm. uh, on their morning commutes or yeah. whatever. Um, just there are a bunch of little things like that 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 have given me the experience of like, oh, there's there's a freedom to um, operating outside those strictures, um, w- whether or not it is in fact a, a feasible thing for my podcast to do in the first place. But but yeah, yeah, it's it is the nature of of our work for sure, and um, and yeah, I do think that this song is delving into the work people do, and maybe getting uh, into getting behind the motivations for it, positively and negatively, and um, and just sort of waking people up to you know how they're complicit in that work by consuming it or by by obliviously sanctioning it somehow or whatever you're doing like it is weird that we 
I said this to a, a guest on my show once. They were a younger band, and they were talking about how much uh, watching Sally Jesse Raphael or uh, somebody <laughs> meant to them. I can't remember what show it was. And I sort of quietly said, well, you know those shows were, or Maury, I think it was. I can't remember what the show was, but like, like you know those shows were kind of racist, right? And they were like, what? I'm like, well, yeah, it was all just trying to, you know, make a gong show out of people's real struggles, and often they were people of color. So if you think about yeah. it, that's not... That's not great. And I I felt bad for them because they'd written like a fun little song about how it was fun to be homesick from school and watch those shows. <laughs> and, you know, you know, you're missing school. I'm like, yeah. And then like, you know, so I just was being heavy with them and I didn't mean it. But like, yeah, you do have to be a bit more. I don't know. You're probably right. The orthodoxy around whether or not advertising is bad or whether or not mainstream culture is bad. It's, it has melted away. Uh, uh, quite a bit um but it doesn't mean we can't be as conscious as possible about what we're consuming and why so and that's why i i don't know i it's fine it's i like exercises like this when i revisit something from my youth because this is a foundational part of me this song with its lyrics and with its sort of beatles sounds uh you know the i know i know the band were massive beatles uh, obsessives, Ghee in particular. So I like, uh, this is fun. Like I kind of like going back to this because I'm learning stuff about a, a brick in my foundation that I thought was just fine. And now we're digging in and I still <laughs> think it's great, but it's just fun to kind of revisit it with you. Uh, cause I just think it's a great song. A common motif that we've discussed on the show before with Guy's lyrics is a lot of songs pop up where he's talking about uh, the human body and his body in particular, and I, I just wanted to to make note of that in this song because I don't I don't think I can miss an opportunity, um, mm. especially with that uh, parade the muscles stanza. I think it's it's uh, worth noting that Guy himself has at least one tattoo, um, which <laughs> people may have seen in photographs of the the little the wheel on his shoulder. Um, I found a a bit in an interview about that where he said. Uh, quote, I was in a band called Rites of Spring before, actually a few bands ago, it was the second band I was in, we had a song called Hidden Wheel, which was, I guess, on the 7-inch that we released. The tattoo has to do with that song, a lot of people think it's a Buddhist wheel or something like that, it has nothing to do with Buddhism, it has to do with that specific song, end quote, but uh, the, the relevant lyrics in that song, for people who aren't familiar, they go, everything I've learned was wrong, I'm the burning door. Once I'm opened, I can't be closed. I found a hidden wheel, and it rolls to reveal that I'm the angry sun. That's just a little bit of trivia. I didn't plan to tie that in particularly to a, to an overarching theory about the song or anything, but um, interesting that he, he brings that up. He seems to have a certain attitude toward piercings, that sort of body modification in general. Um, Vish, you have any tattoos or piercings? No, and frankly... This song kind of swims around in my head. Uh, when it came out, tattoos, piercings were everywhere. Tattoos were there. But um, as we're speaking, it's both things, particularly tattoo. Tattoo culture has just exploded. Uh, it's very, it's unusual for someone not to have a tattoo. Do you have a tattoo? I have a couple of smallish tattoos. And I used, in the early 2000s, I had a lip ring, which 
Uh, I guess I hope it was cool at the time. I think maybe it's <laughs> fallen out of fashion. I, w- what what is considered cool by young people now? It's not, none of my business, but um, I, I don't think people do that as much. I I I viewed the line in it as I don't. I never really have thought of Fugazi as being uh, a particularly judgmental band or dogmatic or whatever people like to say about them. But that line did stick out to me in terms of what just this song to me is about fitting in uh, a lot uh, where people fit in where people are th- are told they don't fit in I mean I'm making an overarching statement based on some of the other stuff we've talked about but there's just something about the sheep like sort of nature of a populace to be like I guess I need to get a tattoo everyone has a tattoo everyone has a piercing I guess I need to do that and I feel like I, I don't necessarily think he is is articulating thoughts about the people who sort of fall in line with that way of thinking as much as he's sort of critiquing the very power that, that you know, as we discussed earlier, just the, 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 the depictions of people in the media, who they choose to depict and how really dictate how the rest of us sort of behave. So if you're a young kid and you see LeBron James has uh, sleeve tattoos, you're going to think that's fine. And that's that's your call. That's fine. But... Uh, if on another level, uh, we were, we only viewed, you know, people who were arrested as having, uh, these kinds of tattoos, you'd, you'd have a negative view of it. And maybe then you would associate when you saw someone in the, in real life with such a, a display, you would, you would think, oh, well, that person must be a bad person or that person might be a good person. It's weird. Mm -hmm. It's just weird. The power, uh, that the media has within that. So I, I do think of that. Like I don't have any tattoos. I've never had any piercings. Uh, I don't do drugs. (laughs) I don't uh, drink alcohol. Like I, there's just certain things where I'm like, I'm not gonna, I just, it just never appealed to me. So I never do that stuff. I don't know if, uh, this makes me, uh, I don't, I'm not being misanthropic about it. I just don't feel like doing that stuff and I don't feel like I have to, to fit in. No, yeah. And that line is a a great thing to be able to consider. Like you, this is for me, a song that has rolled around in my head. And yeah, when when I got my uh, tattoos, when I got my piercing, I I thought about this line and I, you know, I I don't shy away from self-examination. So I'm like, well, why why am I doing this? Is it because I have some kind of um, body insecurity, dysmorphia? Do mm. I do I have the idea that my body is lying to me in some way, and and this is my way of displaying mastery over it? Um, my conclusion is I don't think so. I think it was just sort of a fun thing that I think that I thought would look good, and uh, <laughs> like the for the piercing at least, the tattoos are a little more meaningful, I would say, but. Um, I, th- I think I can come away with a clean conscience saying that uh, I'm not one of the people who that, that Guy is characterizing in this song, but I think it is certainly a question worth asking yourself if you're considering doing something like this, like, what are my motives? What what am I trying to do? Is this something that a well-adjusted person would do? Hmm. Um, if it is, if I am well-adjusted, then go for it. And if not, if I'm trying to um, tackle some sort of personal issue maybe it's worth exploring other ways that you could do that yeah i think that's there but i do think it's also you know when you get to a point where you're asking 
yourself the question, if I do something, will my body stop lying to me? That is acknowledging an external force. Um, you know, it's your body. I think he was on to something about body shaming, um, any kind of shaming, really. Just like to be made to feel bad about your body by prevalent mm -hmm. images in the media, uh, prevalent yeah. images about beauty, about coolness, mm -hmm. about fashion. Like a lot of what's going on in this song, I think, has to do with fashion and how e evil it can yeah. be and how you're. if you look this way, uh, then you're fine. If you look this way, there should probably be a cop visiting your house. Um, and that has a lot to do with how you dress and, and, and how you look. And I think that's also been around in this song as well. I think we should make an abrupt left turn to talk about a little bit of the music in the song, the sonic qualities. We can certainly circle around to more about the music, the lyrics if we uh, think of it, but I, I don't want to miss out yeah. on some of the sonic qualities yeah. here because it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, I um I made a note to myself before we spoke to just try to capture some of that, and I do have a note here uh, that the song feels more overtly Beatlesy than uh, I don't think the Beatles influence shows up so much in Fugazi's stuff, but uh, towards the end of their uh, active trajectory. I could hear it more, like between end hits and the argument in particular, I was just hearing more Beatles ideas. And so this song I wrote has, uh, I wrote here for myself, the main part has kind of a taxman feel uh, in most of the, in most of the guitar parts, both the slashing progression and the weirdo, almost backwards melodic parts, the little breaks, you know, when the song stops and there's like, I feel like there's, it almost sounds right. like a backwards guitar thing that the Beatles were experimenting with. And then also within the rhythmic feel and just the meter, it reminded me more, a bit of Taxman. And then I've got that. I thought the chorus kind of reminded me of Baby, You're a Rich Man by the Beatles. And then the, the last section mm. kind of vaguely reminded me of uh, the uh, main figure in Dig a Pony. So I, I just, in my head, once I got that Beatles thing in my head, I couldn't let it go. And so I thought <laughs> of that. And um, I, I don't know if you know much about the, the history of of where this song came from, I, I have some intel on that uh, that I can share. If oh, you, you do. <laughs> I have a I have a small bit, but uh, let me let me hear what you have first. No, you go first. I want to know what your small bit is. So all all I have is this is something that listener to the podcast uh, and uh, and guest Will Rockwell Scott pointed out to me on our little Facebook community page. There's an interview where uh, they ask. Gee, did Brendan ever bring stuff in that you were actually incapable of playing on the guitar? Gee says, quote, initially, sure, but I would learn it. There's a riff in Foreman's Dog, for example, which wasn't so much hard to play, but it was really hard to play and sing. I could learn to play it, but having to learn to sing a verse on top of it, sometimes that was hard. End quote. So that, so, so that, uh, that riff, I believe, that's the one where the drums stop and then there's like a really quick lick. That's a Brendan part. Mm -hmm. And I think Brendan also came up with some of the guitar that goes over the uh, the verses. Um, so yeah, there is this. Okay, so let me... Oh yeah, that's good. Let me tell you what I know. Let me go now, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, you go. <laughs> so my understanding is that this song, Foreman's Dog, was written on uh, a day where Brendan and Guy got together uh, at, uh, at Guy's place. He was uh, living in a group home. And they made uh, they demoed 
uh, four songs in one afternoon on a four, on an eight track, and it was just them on guitars playing to each other. And so the songs they came up with in that one afternoon were uh, closed captioned, arpeggiator, and foreman's dog, which all ended up uh, on uh, on end hits. So we're in the same ballpark. He there was also a song called uh, Golden Vanity, which uh, Fugazi mm. decided not to play on or, or to pursue, but but uh, a recording of it uh, that uh, Guy and Brendan made showed up on an EP that Guy put out uh, on his own label, uh, Peterbilt. Uh, it's a, it's right. a Black Light Panthers is the name of the, the group it's that uh, Guy and Brendan play together in. So... Okay, so yeah, so they uh, they did a thing that they'd never really done before that day, where they actually um, so they did the guitar parts, but they actually double tracked drums. They double tracked Brendan's drums. So they overdubbed the drums. So they would play. He they would come up with their parts, and then there would be like a, a uh, you know a, a run through of the song on a full drum kit. But they were really into uh, jungle music at the time. So they got mm-hmm. kind of got into this notion of like kind of messing with rhythmic stuff. So they they did a they they would track a set of drums normal speed and then they would do a different speed with a different run through of the same song. So they'd play the drums twice, and so that's as you as you know probably eventually they would they had two drummers uh, uh, when they went on tour. For, when I saw them, they had two drummers, and so yeah. so uh, that's where the idea kind of came from. And um, so, yeah, and originally it was actually going to be a song that Ian was going to sing. Uh, he was singing a, a, another set of lyrics, and it was the song was going to be called, or, or Ian's song was called, uh, or no, sorry, the song Foreman's Dog was going to be called Signed DC, which was a reference to a song by the band Love, which was a band that they all, all the members of Fugazi love this band called Love. I know I said love a lot there, but... Just the way it's got to be. <laughs> so that song signed DC. It didn't work out. So, uh, but he, but the he so Guy took a shot at singing it, and then it became Foreman's Dog. So signed DC became Foreman's Dog, and some of the lyrics from oh no wait a minute sorry <laughs> Ian's song signed DC didn't work out, but he took some of the lyrics from that song and put them in Foreman's Dog. So all the the lyrics you're hearing Ian sing. Uh, which are kind of the, 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 I guess they're sensibly the chorus of the song. Right, loss uh, of concentration, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So those all became the parts he sings on Foreman's Dog. And so Ian wrote those parts. Guy wrote the lyrics in the verses that we've been discussing mostly. Uh, and and also Guy then to sort of tag on uh, the, uh, the reference to Sign DC, he actually says it at the end of the song. Um, so there you go. The, the 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 themes of the Sign DC song and Foreman's Dog have nothing in common, but there it is a bit of a Frankensteining of a session or an idea, a brainstorming thing that uh, Guy and Brendan had, and then Ian had this other song, and so you got these two songs, and uh, so there's there's something interesting going on going on there. Um, I hope that was insightful. Is very insightful. Can I ask you to cite your sources? Not because I don't believe you, but uh, just for my own edification and future use. Or is this a personal uh, from from the horse's mouth sort of things that you're telling me? Yes, yes, it is. Ah, great. Uh, I, I got this from Guy and Brendan, um, 
in particular, Guy in particular. He also, Guy mentions, so there's a very key moment on this song before it wraps up. Do you know the kind of uh, feedback thing? The this, this sort of guitar squeal right before the last yeah. few riffing bars? Yeah. Yeah, let me read you, since I've let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> no, this is, this is fantastic. This is the kind let of me... information that we really love to have, an exclusive <laughs> on the alphabetical Fugazi. Let, let me read you uh, an email I got from Guy about this section of the song. When we were tracking, when we were tracking Foreman's dog, Ian went in to do a guitar overdub for the final coda section. He went in and did that insane dive bob feedback move into that heavy guitar double in one take. And I remember sitting at the recording desk in utter disbelief. I screamed with laughter, and I just couldn't get over it. It remains. <laughs> It remains probably the one most incredible single moment of recording in real time that I have ever been a part of in terms of how utterly crazy it sounded coming over the monitors at top volume and at how blown away I was by Ian's execution. The control he had over his feedback there is astonishing. It just is so hard to do that technically. The arc of it is so perfect and he just one-taked it. He fucking dropped a bomb on the track, and I remember saying to him that I didn't care what happened for the rest of the album or our career as I had reached the mountaintop hearing that go down. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good studio story. Yeah, I didn't know these things, some of these things, so I, in preparation for our chat today, uh, Ian, I thought I would dig in, and, and uh, I, you know... It's, again, a testament to how nice and forthcoming the members of Fugazi can be uh, with me and with others. Because uh, certainly if I had a question about Eleanor Rigby, who, by the way, Brendan feels like this song has a Eleanor Rigby feel when I mentioned the Beatles. And I was like, yeah, oh. Yeah, like the, the, all the separate verses about sort of different people. Yeah, yes. That sort of thing, yeah. Yes, yes. So he went that route. But like... If I had an Eleanor Rigby question, I'm not getting Paul McCartney to email me back answers. You know what I mean? So, no, probably not. Uh, <laughs> it is a testament to their uh, humanity that they take time and and write me uh, questions or answers to my questions. And uh, I hope uh, your listeners and yourself, it sounds like you're rather uh, happy about these uh, anecdotes. I hope you are. Um, uh, and I hope listeners appreciate them, too. Oh, this sh- this podcast is nothing if not uh, deep dives, so there- there's like no detail too tiny as far as I'm concerned. Good, <laughs> good. I imagine anybody listening to this, like uh, an episode specifically about Foreman's Dog by Fugazi, I mean, th- these these are people who want details, I would y- think. Yeah, exactly. That's the premise behind the podcast. Right. Um, that Yeah, that is fantastic, and I wanted to say one of my favorite things musically about the song, it comes right to the end, right? How did it come to mean nothing but this, right? There's there's a ramping up mm-hmm. as if to go into this big heavy part, but it's there's no bass, right? It comes in. Yeah. It's, it's only Guy and Brendan kind of like rocking out when you would expect this to be a huge crashing thing. But no, it's just them rocking out for a couple of bars and then Joe and Ian come in with like the crazy dive bomb thing. So like, I think that's just a brilliant move. That's it's, it's genius. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, as I say, I read a bunch of Beatles things in there that I don't even know if they're necessarily there, but there's something about later, like Abbey road, let it be Beatles. And I guess late sixties Beatles stuff, I guess I also mentioned Taxman, so 66 onward. Basically, the end of the Beatles, I feel, (laughs) there's some aesthetic choices here that the Fugazi made that feels like these are Beatles obsessives 
making their own thing uh, with that band kind of floating in their psyches a little bit. <clears throat> the the Beatlesque guitar thing that you see, I I had been thinking that it was more of a surf music kind of thing, but I could I could also see it as a as Beatlesque. Well, if um, you think of the it, song Taxman and the way this song starts. Again, yeah. I didn't A-B this. It's just in my memory banks, this song and Taxman are just in there. So, you know, as you... And it's also a little sort of, I don't know, trite to compare things so so uh, literally. But if you think of the main guitar part in Taxman and the main initial guitar part in this song, Foreman's Dog, they're cousins, I think. I think they're similar. One of my... Uh, we talked about this riff that uh, Guy said was hard to play. I had been assuming not not that it was not the because um, he's not actually singing during that, but instead I was thinking he was talking about the riff that comes in like halfway yeah. through the verses. Um, and in fact, I went to the videotape and <laughs> checked out a couple of instances of them playing live. And there are times when Guy... Um, actually stops singing when it comes to that part he just like goes mute on that part of the verse yeah yeah so um and one of my outstanding questions and and my theory is that this might explain why foreman's dog was a relative rarity live Mm -hmm. um in fact it sits right next to the song guilford fall as the rarest live song from end hits Um, according to my data that's uh 33 and 32 times those songs were played Mm. um uh respectively and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good song. And sometimes I wonder why certain songs were played so much less frequently than others. Maybe it was uh, just simply a question of uh, the ease with which it is executed live. Um, I can see how this would be a tricky one. There's some there's some challenging sounding guitar things uh, for Guy to be playing. And I haven't even tried to uh, play them myself yet, but they, they sound tricky for sure. Well, it's fascinating you mentioned uh, Guilford Fall... And uh, in comparison to Foreman's Dog, because uh, at one point in an email exchange I had with Guy about this song, Foreman's Dog, uh, he mentions that there, I forget how it came up, but basically I I said, he mentioned that there are demos of some of these songs on instrument, but not of this song, Foreman's Dog. And I said, no, I think there is. Hang on a second. Like I emailed him this, by the way. I thought there was. Like, in my head, there is one. And then I just reached over as I was writing him. I reached over to the record, and I was like, oh, no, it's not here. Uh, That's weird. And so I wrote that in my email. Then I get a text from Brendan. We did a great demo of Foreman's Dog that ended up on the instrument soundtrack. And I write back, oh, I thought it did, too. Uh, Guy thinks it didn't. And (laughs) And then he wrote, checking now. Oh, I think I'm thinking of Guilford Fall. And I wrote, what? Uh-huh. That's literally what I wrote to Guy. Like, I literally wrote, I think there's a version of FD on the instrument soundtrack. I hear it in my head. If only I could look this up somehow. Oh, I pulled the record and it's not. I was thinking of Guilford Fall. And he says, yeah, they're similar songs. So they, they are. They're related songs. Uh, curiously not, by Guy's uh, recollection, written that same afternoon, I don't believe. What did he say? Arpeggiator is actually one of my favorite. Closed captioned, Arpeggiator and Foreman's Dog. Uh, and then this song, Golden Vanity, all written that afternoon. And it is interesting that arpeggiators from that session, because this is one of those song pairings that in my head, like, you can't play Foreman's Dog 
and have it skip to a completely different song. It, you have to go into arpeggiator. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is not something you can listen to on shuffle and have this song end and have uh, uh, Walking on Sunshine by Katrina no, and the they, Waves. No, I agree. Up. They're connected. <laughs> they're absolutely linked, and, uh, uh, yeah. and they're two of my favorites. And I remember watching... I always thought that song looked hard to play um, for Gideon. Oh, yeah. Um, and I always thought, oh, those are Brendan parts that... <laughs> good luck guys i came up with these parts good luck like i'm gonna sit behind the drums so yeah no it's a it's a fantastic i there's a lot going on uh in foreman's dog i thank you for uh, asking me to to be on this show so that we could go down this road about it because i i hope you found it i hope you find this fascinating i i, I have myself Absolutely. And if you want to sum up a little on this show, we always do a little segment called Ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Not everyone loves it, but I'll ask you if you want to do it uh, from one star to five stars, but purely in the context of Fugazi's songs. What do you think about Foreman's Dog? Where does it rank on that scale for you? Now, let me just get this straight, first of all, Ian. You, uh-huh. you ask people to be on the show. Uh huh. You ask them to pick the songs that they want to talk about, right? Uh huh. I ask. Are you, you questioning my methodology, sir? How is any song that any of us pick not <laughs> going to be a five star song? Why would we pick like a three star song? It makes no sense. Of course, I think I I, put, I picked it. Of all the songs, like you asked me early enough that I probably had the the pick of the alphabet, and I went with the as you mentioned earlier. I picked three songs. So obviously, I thought those are five stars. They're my favorite band. Come on, Ian. Let's let's do this together. You and I together on this. You know they're my favorite band. You asked me to pick a song. I picked three. Those all have to be fives by just the logic. So this is a five. I don't know what your rating system means. I don't like them. I don't like rating systems. But I will say this: I love this song. I obviously wanted to talk about it with you. They're from. It's by my favorite band. The odds are pretty good. It's a five. It's a five. It's all I'll say. Uh, Mr. Kana, I've never been berated like this on my own <laughs> podcast before. Um, I'll, you know, point of order, sir. I'll... <laughs> Do you follow what I'm saying? Doesn't it make sense that, of course, I think it's a five? Why would I be like, you know, I picked a two and a half just for fun. I picked a song that I don't like. <laughs> Who does that? Sometimes, sometimes those are interesting to discuss, though. You got to give me that. You're like, yeah, I know. Here's an, Has anyone here's an said, is, in the do catalog. people say less than five about a song they chose to talk about on your show? Uh, they do, but but I, I have, uh, <laughs> between you and I and uh, all our listeners, I have observed this phenomenon before, and um, uh, it it can from time to time put me in the position of having to defend a low rating against uh, an, an ardent fan of the given song. Right. Wouldn't it be more interesting for you to say, okay, I appreciate that you love this song because you chose to talk about it on the show. Do you want to know what I would rate this as, as the host? <laughs> Wouldn't that be more interesting? Because then it's like at the end... I've, I should just assume that everybody has uh, is coming in with a five star rating. Minimum and I, four and a half or a five. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, why would you talk uh-huh. about something you don't like? And then, I mean, for drama at the end, you could be like, "Guess what, pal? I know you were speaking glowing terms with me for about an hour. I think this is a two. Then, <laughs> if tension, conflict, people will tune in every week. Like, oh, where's this going to go? What's this guy going to say to his guest at the end of the show? I have no idea. Shoots him down. It's weird. I think you'd got a got a good gimmick there. Yeah, I could frame it more as a no-holds-barred debate uh-huh. and put up like some kind of confrontational thumbnail uh, with the episode on YouTube and like we're, we're both in like fighting stances. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that that's the kind of thing that puts butts in seats. <laughs> I think you, you have something there. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. 
Anyway, anyway, in this case, I'm going uh, 4.5. I think it's... Uh, I mean, what, what else is there left to say? Uh, what, one thing that is left to say, uh, just by way of, um, of bolstering a, my positive rating, is to say, boy, I love the part where Guy says, man, check it out. Yeah. Like, how great is that? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> and I think it sort of speaks to how colloquially we've gotten to a point where, like, this kind of stuff is just normalized. The stuff he's talking about is just normalized. Man, just check it out. Like, it's almost like a friendly thing. Like, you won't believe this guy. It sounds like a very old school hip hop sort of thing to do, like a, like a Curtis Blow sort oh, of yeah, sure. way to introduce a verse, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's something going on there. I think it's a bit of a, like I say, it's like a colloquial normalization sort of move. And because it does stand out, you're absolutely correct to point that out. Well, uh, before we wrap things up, uh, just to give a shout out to some of our listeners on social media, I like to give them a chance to weigh in. Our friend Justin Rushgold said, uh, "Major dude looks like a lady vibes on the intro." That's that's not a connection that I made myself. Um, also, I'm always a big fan of the songs where Ian and Guy both have substantial vocal parts. This song has one of my favorite Fugazi outros. The way it's just the the guitar and drums starting the last part, and then the rest of the band comes in, is the absolute best. I agree with hmm. that, Justin. And uh, James Vitito said, I always felt like the beginning owed a bit to Blonde Redhead. Fugazi had a way of being influenced by friends that they had influenced, like Dear Justice Letter and NOU, a close circle of friends inspiring one another. Hmm. And uh, Jared Coffin says, I get a major Monsters feel to the song, <laughs> almost like a surf rock riff, but a bit darker. And uh, the he says, the If I Pierce It, Will My Body Stop Lying to Me part. I often wonder the same thing on that subject, but I wasn't so articulate about it. And our uh, fellow podcaster Conan Neutron, if you're aware of his work, says, oh yeah, this one slams, the intro is super rad, and I like the arpeggiated figure along with the rhythmic strumming. Neat hooks. So those that's what our listeners have to say about this one. And um, that sort of brings us to about the end of the show, where I love to give my guests an opportunity to do plugs as i said uh vish i'll put a link to creative control in the show notes so listeners can just go down there and click right on it and listen to some of your excellent interviews um and uh anything else that you'd like to say about uh, where listeners can reach you or any other related projects you have to plug anything like that well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show, Ian. It, uh, it, I appreciated this conversation, and I appreciate this project as a fan of the band, so I hope you'll continue it. Uh, it sounds like you're bound to get to the end of the alphabet. Like there's no, I can't quit now, can I? Yeah, there's no choice for you. I just numbered my show, so it doesn't matter when I stay. It could stop at any point. It doesn't, <laughs> there's not a goal for it. You've got to get all the way to Z, or as we say in Canada, Z. So good luck with that. Um I do want to point out one thing. Uh, you mentioned that if all goes well, this episode will be out December 5th, right? And that would be the first uh, day in December, That the uh, first episode of December. Is that right? That's probably, right. Probably? Okay. So uh, just for everyone's interest, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, December uh, will mark the 40th anniversary of the uh, invention of Discord Records. So uh, December is when uh, Minor Threat... Uh, kind of got together as well, and then they put out the posthumous uh, Teen Idols 7-inch. Uh, so uh, it's pretty pretty fascinating. So one of my guests that I, I have a plan for my creative control show, it's a loose at the moment, but I want to try to commemorate uh, Discord Records and, and this 40th anniversary. 
Uh, so uh, maybe by the time people even hear this, they will know that one of my my first guests uh, of the month will actually be Ian Mackay. Uh, not necessarily to talk about the anniversary, but uh, we'll, I don't even know what we're going to talk about yet. We're still working that out. But I thought I would highlight that for you uh, and your listeners. Uh, I imagine they are, uh, you know, aware of this little uh, statistic, but uh, I imagine that must be meaningful for you. Yes, 40 years of Discord. That's amazing. 40 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think they're uh, too invested or interested in doing anything to, uh, you know, hop on the anniversary marketing bandwagon that seems to be going on. But uh, I personally wanted to commemorate this. Uh, so uh, some after some back and forth with uh, Ian, we're going to do something, I believe. Um, and then, yeah, if I can pull it off, I'd like to pay tribute to other artists uh, affiliated with Discord that uh, that means something to me. So I, I say this, not sure if it's going to happen, uh, but I, I, I'm loosely thinking of like a Discord December thing happening on my show, uh, Creative Control in December. So that's maybe what I would... God, I really put pressure on myself. I have no, I've not done anything about this, uh, really. Like I just, it's a, it's a figment of my imagination as I'm speaking to you, but I have some ideas. So I'm going to see what I can do. Well, I'm going to tune in and see what happens. So you've got one listener right there. Put me down for one ticket. Just so we're clear, I normally do one episode a week, just like you. Mm-hmm. But in October, recently I did two a week and it darn near killed me, yeah. I will say. It's too much. So I reverting back to November. Uh, one of the reasons I had to do it, though, I don't know if you're finding this. Your show is a bit different than mine in terms of what you're actually doing. My show is a little topical, I would say. I try to talk about people with new stuff, mostly, uh, records, projects. I couldn't keep up. Like, something about this pandemic, like, people wanted to talk, and I wanted to talk to them. And so I was just sitting and sitting on episodes forever. And so in, in October, I'm like, screw it. I got a clean house here. I can't just sit. They're going to not be relevant or... They feel relevant now, so I'm just going to get rid of them. But I've purposely started to slow down. Now I'm sitting on a stockpile as I'm speaking to you again. Uh, so all this to say, if you tune in in December, I might double up again to honor the Discord thing, but also, like I said, to get rid of some of these things I have in the can, so to speak. So if you're tuning in one day and you're like, this isn't Discord related, just <laughs> my plan is one Discord thing uh, a week and one normal other thing a week. And then we'll go to as far into December as I can before I lose my mind. So that's my only uh, caveat or heads up, if that makes any sense. There you go. Go ahead and uh, head over to Creative Control. Hear the slow mental deterioration of Vishkana. (laughs) And um, yeah, thank you again for being on the show and for doing the little extra legwork to bring us some exclusive information about Foreman's Dog. Uh, I have no plugs other than, as always, you can reach me at fugaziA to Z at gmail.com, and you can join the Facebook group I alluded to earlier. Just search the alphabetical Fugazi. Uh, join that, and you can talk about the upcoming songs that I'll be recording. And, uh, yeah, keep listening, please. I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Forensic Scene. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is